I had been reaching out to our buyer at Wegmans for, gosh, six to seven months with no response. Like religiously every single week, I would leave a voicemail, I would email and I would get nothing. And so since she wasn't opening the front door, I, I found a window on the side. You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews Okome. So let's get started. Today's episode is brought to you by Gusto. Gusto offers modern, easy payroll benefits and HR to small businesses across the country. They were even named Best Online Payroll by PC Mag. And as a Side Hustle Pro listener, you will get three months free when you run your first payroll. So sign up and give it a try at gusto.com slash SHP. That's gusto.com slash SHP. Hey, hey guys, welcome, welcome back to the show. Today in the guest chair, we have Denise Woodard, the founder of Partake Foods. Partake Foods provides meals and snacks that are delicious, safe, and nutritious for conscious eaters. They are free of gluten, the top eight allergens, and artificial ingredients. Made with real foods like sprouted grains, fruits, and vegetables, Partake products give peace of mind to those with dietary restrictions and simple enjoyment to those without. Denise, welcome to the guest chair. Thank you. I'm so excited to be on. I'm very excited to have you as someone who is a hypochondriac, some would call it. I have diagnosed myself with a little bit of gluten intolerance. (laughs) I have no (laughs) idea if this is true. But I'm curious to know, why were you so passionate about starting a gluten-free food company? So I spent my career previously in consumer packaged goods and was at Coca-Cola working on uh, entrepreneurial brands. And so I was very interested in the entrepreneurial food and beverage space, but didn't have an idea. But that changed um, in early 2016, my daughter was around one at the time. And I remember it was a Wednesday after- afternoon and our nanny screamed from the living room and she'd taken a bite of the snack that was made out of half peanut and half corn. And as soon as she bit into it, her lips began to swell. She had trouble breathing. She turned blue in our living room. Thank God we live really close to a hospital. But I don't have food allergies. My husband doesn't have food allergies. And so they weren't really on my radar. But after that, we learned that my daughter suffers from multiple food allergies. And so Partake was born out of a desire to make better for you snacks that actually taste good that my daughter and other children who suffer from food allergies or those with self-diagnosed gluten intolerance (laughs) Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. But oh my God, how terrifying. That sounds so horrific as a parent to have to experience that. Now, at what stage, you know, after going through that experience, coming back from the hospital, did you say, I'm actually going to start this? Or did you at first try to find some products in your local grocery store? We definitely tried to find things. And so we live in Jersey City, right across the river from Manhattan. So we have every kind of health food store you can think of like at our disposal. And so I went to look for things that had good ingredients and tasted good. And what I was finding was things that had ingredients I felt good about, my daughter would literally refuse to eat. (laughs) It it was terrible. And I'm not gluten-free or vegan. And so I always equated those things with healthy, but very quickly realized it could mean full of gums and starches and a ton of sugar. And so the idea for Partake was probably about four months after our food allergy scare. And once again, we were back in our living room and our, our wise nanny um, was like, why is your one-year-old on a paleo diet? And I was like, that's a good 
question, but it's because I can't find anything that she can eat that I want to give her. I'm working like crazy, traveling like crazy. Like I don't have time to make every baked good from scratch. She's like, you should start a food company. It's like, you know what? I should. And I think at the time it sounded a lot easier than it's proved to be, but now I'm so passionate about it. And we're so far down this rabbit hole that we're going to keep going. Yes. And at the time, so you were working at Coca-Cola. What did your role there entail? You said you were traveling a lot. Yeah, so Coca-Cola has a venturing and emerging brands division where any um, healthy brands that Coke has either invested in or acquired outright sit. So like Zico, Coconut Water, Honest Tea. And so I led sales for everything that was non-traditional brick and mortar retail. So everything from bringing Honest Kids to Chick-fil-A to getting our products on Delta Airlines or getting them into Google or Facebook or Twitter's headquarters. So had an experience to work with a, a wide group of really passionate entrepreneurs entrepreneurs on on brands that I actually really felt good about and was proud that Coke had acquired or invested in. That is amazing. I'm glad you broke that down because I did not realize that. And, you know, sometimes the title just really gives no kind of inkling into what you actually do. Isn't that funny how life works? Like here you are about to create this emerging brand that is gluten free, allergen free, and you're working in, in this role. Did that influence or help your process at all? Definitely so. I think seeing so many, I don't want to say regular people, but regular people who had jobs that weren't in CPG, who just had some sort of personal issue that they were passionate about and turning that into a viable business that provided jobs for other people and made products that helped other people. Like seeing that actually come to life definitely gave me a lot more confidence because had I transitioned from, I was at Coke for 10 years and eight of those years I worked on like Coke diet, Coke and Sprite. And and so I didn't have any glimpse into the entrepreneurial side of the business. And so had I not seen that, I don't know that I would have had the courage to take the leap and do it. So it's very interesting how the stars have aligned on our journey. Absolutely. And I think that will be encouraging for people who are listening now, because sometimes making that shift within a company just to get closer when you know, maybe you don't know what your next step will be, but exploring what's available to you within your company can be just what you need to trigger that next move, that epiphany or what have you. So now back to partake. Were you also a good cook? Were you a good baker? How did you start developing the recipes? So I like to say I'm a decent cook, but I'm a pretty bad baker. (laughs) But arrogantly, I thought, well, I'm really passionate about this. It can't be that hard. And so I went and I literally spent hundreds of dollars at Whole Foods thinking that I could just kind of read blogs and cookbooks and figure out how to make this magical, delicious, nutritious, allergy-friendly cookie. I failed horribly at that (laughs) and realized that that was not, like we would not have a company. We would have never launched it had we been relying on my baking skills. Um, Thanks to some like good old LinkedIn stalking, I literally looked up every company that I felt like was doing a decent job in in this space and found all their ex-employees and just started contacting people and asking, hey, do you know anybody who can formulate? Do you know any food scientists? And and we found a woman who's been a dream to work with and is an equity holding team member of ours now. All right. And I'm glad you brought up the equity holding because I was going to ask you how that worked. When you you bring someone on before you're making any money and before you really know what the company will become, how do you get them to buy into your vision? You know, I think it was just, we got on the phone and we hadn't even met in person initially. And we talked for like three hours. And I think she really saw my vision for the company, believed in what we were doing and and was really willing to come on board without any 
like actual monetary, a very, very minimal monetary compensation, like 95% less than her going rate, but was willing to take a, a small equity component in the company. And I think it was because she believed in what we were doing and, and me as a founder. Now, what were your first steps together? How did you start developing the recipes? Were you in the same state? We were not. So we didn't meet in person until we showed up at, we manufacture our products in a small town in Idaho. And so we showed up in Idaho together after she had like created some stuff in her kitchen and she had sent me samples that I'd tasted in my kitchen, but it was all done very remotely. It's interesting because all of the contractors and part-time employees we work with are, none of them are here. And a couple of them I've been working with for over a year and have never met in person. I can relate to that. Um, Now, why Idaho? Um, so I knew that in doing this, I wanted to create a scalable company. I wanted to build something that would make a difference in the lives of lots and lots of people. Um, and so there was no point in my mind in making an allergy friendly product. If I was going to make it in a facility right next to like gluten or nuts or soy or dairy. And so at the time there was only one independently owned facility in the country that was top eight allergen free. And they work with some of the biggest gluten-free companies in the country and they don't really work with startups. And so that was one, another one of those like hop on the phone and just have somebody believe in your passion and your vision for the company. And definitely like deal was not done after phone call number one one or two or three, but with persistence and maybe borderline stalking, we were able to get them to agree to work with us. And we've been working with them for a couple of years now and it's been great. So who were you stalking? And did you find that person on LinkedIn too? You know, it's interesting. I think there's another business venture here. So in the food space, finding a what we call like a co-packer or contract manufacturer is really hard. It's like they don't want to be found. They don't have websites, like <laughs> no like place to just go find them. And so I think I was literally on page like 13 or 14 of some sort of food allergy mom message board and someone was interrogating a company about their manufacturing processes. And the company said, well, we manufacture in this small town in Idaho and name the town. And so then I was able to kind of literally like phone book comb all the food manufacturers in that town and, and give them a call. Wow. So that was a little more old school, just like literally pulling out a phone book. That is persistence, you know, because first of all, what is a phone book, right? Where, where can I find one today? <laughs> oh, my gosh. So what happens when you meet in Idaho? Were you finalizing products or still testing them out? We were finalizing. And so luckily, the person we're working with, she's been an absolute dream. She has a really extensive background in, in product commercialization. So she's taken several things kind of from idea to finished product on shelf. So she felt really good that with the samples she had provided me, she'd be able to go in and, and within a day or two of work, we'd be able to have something that we would be ready to sell to retailers. And, and thank goodness she she was right. So once we were there, it was really just bringing the formulas that she'd created to life. Awesome. And this co-packer. So does this mean they're putting the cookie together and they are also packing it into the boxes? Exactly. Yep. So we ship the ingredients to them. They bake everything, package everything, and then it goes out to different retailers. Wow. Did you ever at any point think of doing this in your own small kitchen as just a test? So... Uh, maybe it's a blessing in disguise, but in New Jersey, there's no cottage food law. So you actually can't legally sell product you've made in your kitchen okay. to anyone. So otherwise, I probably like had there been a commercial kitchen op op opportunity available, I probably would have tried that. Had I been able to make it in my kitchen, I probably would have tried that. And so I've 
kind of consider it a blessing and a curse. It made us have to go fairly big pretty quickly, but otherwise I may have been scared to take that leap to to move to a co-packer. Got it. And where, how long did it take you from the idea to that trip to Idaho to finalize? It was one year. So it was June 2016 when we were in my living room and Martha said, you should start a food company. And it was July 2017 when we did our first production run in Idaho. How big was that production run? How did you decide how big of an inventory load you wanted? So it was partially decided for me because it's such a a large manufacturer that we're working with. You know, they obviously didn't want us to go out of business before we were in business, but they have minimum like their mixer is a 500 pound mixer. So it can only hold a certain like it has to hold at least a certain amount of product. So I think we probably got maybe like 3000 boxes out of that run. And so they they took it easy on me because it's much smaller than they would normally mandate but it was a lot more than I knew what to do with. Like we'd had a Kickstarter campaign we needed to fulfill probably about a thousand boxes, but I had a storage unit across the street from my house, a a climate controlled storage unit with like 2000 boxes of cookies in it. And I was like, okay, these need to be sold ASAP. And we didn't have any commitments from retailers or anything at that point. So tell us about the Kickstarter now. What stage during that year did you start the Kickstarter and how much did you raise? So we did the Kickstarter like October, November, 2016. So we'd had a name, we had package renderings, we had kitchen samples, and we knew why we were doing what we were doing. And so a large part of it was to build community around Partake Foods and to make consumers aware of what we were doing prior to launch. Um, And we ended up raising about $30,000. Okay. So in that whole Kickstarter in that fundraising phase, what stands out to me is that you said you really wanted to let the let people know what was coming. And it was was it less about the money or more so about the marketing? It was more so about the marketing. But, you know, if I could go back and do things again, I probably I should have done more research on this. But Kickstarter in terms of their consumer it's not my consumer. Like the food allergy mom doesn't even know what Kickstarter is. And so it ended up being a lot of friends and family and us like begging our networks, like support and share this and share this. And so, you know, it ended up turning out great, but for the effort that we put into it, you know, I don't know that Kickstarter was the right platform for us. That's good to know. And it's good to know where your audience is too. Where would you say that allergy friendly conscious mom is these days? So we also, once we started selling the cookies, I was literally just like selling them out of my car for eight months to stores in New York and New Jersey. And I demoed like crazy, like every other day of the week I was doing a demo. And I very quickly realized the food allergy mom actually isn't our consumer yet. And I should have known this being one, but there's just a really high barrier to entry with that consumer because if you give your child the wrong thing, like the negative ramifications are huge. And so until a brand has built a lot of brand equity and is showing up in all the retailers that this mom trusts, it's really hard to convert them. But luckily, there's a lot of people, I think the stats say like 100 million, um, who are kind of like you, self-diagnosed. <laughs> <with me. laughs> Shout so out to a us. Lot of people who are on free from diets, whether that's uh-huh. soy free or dairy free and not necessarily out of medical necessity. And right. so we're finding that those people are buying our products and we're finding them at different like vegan expos, uh, gluten-free fairs. Um, we do a lot of partnerships with like local yoga studios, mommy and me classes. Pretty much, it, it sounds very cliche, but anywhere healthy millennials are is where we're finding consumers that are resonating with the brand. That is such a good discovery to know that, you know, yes, you are going after this target consumer and your mission is grounded in this 
need to serve this mom. However, there are other people along the way who actually need and want your product too. That is such a good discovery. Now, you mentioned demoing. What does that mean? How do you get the opportunity to demo or take the opportunity to demo? And most stores are actually really supportive because the more you sell, the more it helps them, the more money they make. And so literally it's asking your local grocery store manager if you can set up a table in their store and hand out samples of the product to their customers, hoping that people will purchase the product. So what's also interesting to me about your business is it was very important to you that this tastes good. And it's hard to believe that with all these products out there that are health conscious and gluten free, that it's so hard finding good tasting stuff. That said, I've tasted a lot of cardboard in my quest (laughs) for healthy snacks. So how did you solve for that? I will say, I think our food scientist is an angel. Um, I gave her some metrics in terms of, I knew we wanted to include fruit and vegetables in every cookie. I knew we wanted to have considerably less sugar than everyone else. And I knew I wanted to use more nutritionally stable uh, flours like sprouted buckwheat, sprouted millet, oat and cassava versus some of the like white rice flour and other flour options that usually Mm -hmm. exist in gluten-free cookies. And she just made it come to life. So I really wish I had a better answer for you, but she just is a magician in in the kitchen. Yes. Now, okay, so you're doing these demos and you end up in Whole Foods, Wegmans. How does that come about? And then what did that do for your co-packing and your, your order size? So Whole Foods came about once we started to get good reception in New York on our products, taste. Um, I felt confident enough to start to try to scale the business. So in early 2018, I reached out to Whole Foods and literally that was more LinkedIn stalking. I just like went, I, I tried to find every single grocery category manager for every region of Whole Foods across the country. And Somehow I found a gentleman in Boulder, Colorado, who was kind enough to forward my email on to the global category buyer for Whole Foods who managed the entire cookie set. She was like, you know, I really like your brand and the the idea behind your products and the taste of the products, but we're not going to launch you nationally because you have no brand awareness and you don't have any money. And I was like, okay, fair. But they launched us in their headquarters region. So we're in Whole Foods Southwest, which is Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, and have been performing really well. So I feel really good that at some point we'll continue to expand with them. Um, Wegmans was, you know, I'd been reaching out to our buyer at Wegmans for, gosh, six to seven months with no response, like religiously every single week, I would leave a voicemail, I would email and I would get nothing. And so since she wasn't opening the front door, I I found a window on the side, which was the distributor who uh, was bringing the products to Wegmans, I found was presenting products to the buyer. And so I went the distributor route and he was a huge fan of our products and and turned out he was gluten-free and vegan as well. And so we were in like two weeks after that. And I was like, gosh, I should have done this a lot sooner rather than additional route. Wow. You found a window. Did y'all hear that? You (laughs) couldn't get in the door. So you found a window. (laughs) (laughs) A small bootstrap startup. I think sometimes that's the only way. Hey guys, it's Michaela here with a quick word from our sponsors. If you have a business or you know someone who does, you probably know by now that small business owners, we wear a lot of hats. 
And some of those hats are mad fun, I'm not gonna lie. But some of them, like filing taxes and running payroll, they're not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR actually easy for us small businesses. It's fast with simple payroll processing benefits and expert HR support all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes, so you don't have to worry about all that. Plus, they make it easy to add on things like health benefits and even 401ks for your team. So those old school clunky payroll providers that you probably thought you had to look at, they just weren't built for the way we work as modern small businesses, but Gusto is. So let them wear all of those hats for you. You have better things to do. Side Hustle Pro listeners, you get three months free when you run your first payroll. So test it out. See for yourself at gusto.com SHP. That's gusto.com SHP. Now, at this stage, how are you juggling your director role at Coca-Cola, your family, you know, your husband, your kids or your daughter? Yeah. How are you making this work? Ah, so I didn't mention this part. Coke, whenever. So right after we had the idea for Partake, Mm -hmm. we as stars would have it. We're in line at the zoo and a gentleman in front of us was talking about... um, we were talking, my husband and I were talking about the idea for Partake and a gentleman in line in front of us was like, you should enter this small business contest. It's called the uh, Start Something Challenge. It's for small businesses in New Jersey and it's sponsored by like JP Morgan and Blackstone. And so we entered and we ended up winning with just an idea. And that's really when I was like, okay, I'm going to do something with this. And so during that process, we got some media coverage. And the last thing I wanted was for my boss at Coke to see me on the news in the newspaper, like selling cookies. Yes. So I had to <laughs> tell Coke pretty early on after I had the idea of what I was doing. And uh-huh. they gave me the ultimatum of, uh, you can stay here until you start selling products to the same customers customers we sell to, which is pretty much every store in America. Yes. So it was, it was a nice kick in the butt because once again, kind of like that commercial kitchen versus co-packer thing, I probably never would have had the courage to leave my job because I, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the salary. Yes. And, and so I don't know that I would have had the courage to leave. And so I had to leave Coke in August of 2017 when I started selling cookies. And so I think that was another thing that made me like hustle even harder because I was like, we have to start making up for the income that we're losing without right. me. And was there ever a moment there where you thought, um, you know what, I can't leave my salary. Maybe I'll put this idea on pause for another six months. You know, no, I I think a large part of it was my husband was really, really supportive of the idea. And he was like, you know, we'll figure it out. Um, And I just felt like so many things had aligned, like the food scientist we work with. She's nearly 50. We found her the one year of her career that she was doing freelance work. And then the co-packer had agreed to work with us at this point and doesn't work with startups. And so, so many things were working in our favor that was like, if I don't do this now, I never will or somebody else will. And I won't have the opportunity to. Yes. And I'm so glad you were able to have that conversation with Coca-Cola. I think a lot of people are scared about having that conversation with their job. It's great that you were able to have that conversation, but I think it was such a direct conflict of interest that you you definitely had to. Mm-hmm. All right. So now it says you started out with three flavors of your mini cookies. So how did you narrow down the flavors? Was there any kind of uh, focus group involved? And then what happened once you put them on the market? 
So it was very uh, rudimentary uh, focus group. So it was literally like a survey monkey. And I sent it to top 10 mom friends and I asked each of them to send it to 10 more. And so I think we ended up getting to somewhere between 400 and 500 responses. And a lot of it was around, does your child have food allergies? Are you sensitive to like, do you have, do you buy nut free snacks for your child? Even if they don't have allergies, what types of flavors do you like to see in, in products for your child? And so that's how we got to our original three flavors. Um, we had a chocolate chip, a carrot oat, and a sweet potato millet. We've since added two new flavors, double chocolate chip and birthday cake. And we're finding that birthday cake is actually becoming the fast favorite in terms of our retail sales. All right. You know what I love when I look on Amazon and I put in prime only, I see partake foods as an option. How does that work? (laughs) Because, you know, I imagine I don't know how shipping and working with Amazon works, but how do you preserve the quality of your ingredients while still having it inventory in different places? So for Amazon, we're still on their seller central platform, which means like literally we are shipping stuff out either from our co-packer or from our warehousing space in New Jersey to Amazon on a weekly basis, depending on how like what they expect our inventory levels need to be based on our sales. And so we own the product until it's sold by Amazon, fulfilled by Amazon. They take a fee. And so you know, thus far, it hasn't, there hasn't been too many points of distribution that it's been hard to keep a handle on things. But I'm sure as we continue to grow, that's definitely one place I'm really nervous about. Because even you look on Amazon and you'll find something like Dove Soap and there's like a hundred different people selling it. And so, you know, that's great because it means your company's huge, but it's also really scary because somebody could purchase our product from someone else and and not have a great brand experience. Luckily, we haven't experienced that yet, but you know, I'm scared for and excited for the day that will come. Yes, it's, it's like the scary, but good, but terrifying right. journey and problems of an entrepreneur. Now, talk to us about the funding piece. So while you worked at Coca-Cola, I, I imagine it was much easier to fund and bootstrap this company. But how have you been funding it once you had to leave? So once I left, we, we did the Kickstarter campaign that was $30,000. And then during the winter of 2018 of oh, the winter of 2017 so going into 2018 we raised a small amount of friends and family capital um, we did have a couple of institutional partners come in so we were in Google's Black Founders program in 2017 and, and through our presentation there we met backstage capital who invested in women and minority and LGBTQ founders so they invested on in our friends and family round and then SoFi Ventures the student loan people they have an entrepreneur program program that we're a member of. So they invested in our convertible note as well. And so that was really to help support Wegmans, Whole Foods, the additional probably 150 stores that we launched in 2018. And we're in the midst of raising capital right now, which has been quite the adventure to put it mildly. Right. So how is that going? How do you approach and structure your raising So we are looking to raise up to a million dollars right now. We're probably two thirds of the way there. Uh, A large part of it came through friends and family again. And when I say friends and family, I'm using that term fairly loosely. It's like a lot of my husband's old colleagues have told a friend who told a friend and kind of through like our social networks, not necessarily like true friends and family. And then we've been on the angel network circuit like crazy. I never knew there were so many angel groups in New York. Um, 
New York Angels and Empire Angels and 37 Angels, so many angel groups. So we've been on the angel circuit really hard. And then talking to a couple of uh, family offices and funds that are specifically interested in uh, investing in underrepresented founders. You know, early on in our fundraising, I went after, I don't want to call them the more glamorous, but like the more well-known funds that it invested in mm-hmm. and kind of like the shiny up and coming companies and got so many like, well, I don't think you'll be able to do this. And I don't think this market is big enough. And I don't think like so many just holes poked in everything. We don't invest in food and beverage, but clearly I've just looked at your portfolio online. And <laughs> right, right. Food and beverage. And so I, I quickly, probably like a month of that, I was like, this is obvious. This is not the path for us. And yeah. so I think the path for us right now to get to the capital needs we have is through angel investors and through funds that are specifically interested in investing in women founders, minority founders, and other other upper underrest I can't talk to that. <laughs> Underestimated groups. Yes, that happens to me too. Trust me. So that's interesting that you say that because I've been hearing more founders of color, women founders talk about this, this angel, that that path. So what about going after angel investors? feels and and is a different experience than the traditional VC big boys that you hear about? I think for the angel groups that we've talked to, it's nice because they're fairly large groups. So a couple of them, you know, 40 to 70 people. And so the nice thing is that each one of those people is an accredited investor who can write their own check. And so everyone comes into that room with different experiences. So there's some women who want to support women founders. There's, we've met several men who are like, my grandchild has food allergies. I think this is fantastic. And so I think you're able to tap into a much more wide swath of people, whereas you know, not to be stereotypical, but a lot of times like your traditional VCs, like the background is, you know, finance and Ivy League and just not necessarily as wide of a range of people that you're going to interact with. That's good to know. And then as far as tapping into these, do you find it to be more accessible? So when you say like, you know, especially in the New York area, how do you even approach and get in front of the angels? I think most of them have online submission processes and then a couple others Back to that LinkedIn stalking I I found the founders of and just cold emailed. And thus far, I think all the groups that we've reached out to have been receptive, which has been really nice. So once you have that million, what is the next step? Where are you trying to take this and and why do you need this million in order to do it? So right now I'm the only full-time employee. So we probably need to bring on another headcount and and we have a good bench of potential uh, first and second and third employees, hopefully, who who will still be interested in working with us and around (laughs) we're ready to hire them. Um, But we'll bring on our first full-time employee. I haven't taken a salary to date, so I will start taking a salary. And then from a marketing perspective, we're looking to finish the year in about 2,000 stores. And we figured we have a good grasp on how much it takes in terms of like demos and social media advertising to support each retail store that we bring on. So a good portion of that will go to marketing and the remainder just goes to working capital for us. So there's seems to, there's a lag because, you know, we have terms with our ingredient suppliers, like we can usually pay them 30 days after we purchase, but then it's, it's our retail partners that sometimes aren't paying us on the terms. And so mm-hmm. just being able to bridge that with, with some additional capital is really important as well. Speak on it. Speak on it. It's very important to have that working capital. And when you rely on people to pay you in order to pay other people, whoo, that's a that's a 
dangerous right. line to walk. And you yeah. think so. Like, and I was very naive about this going into it because I thought like if you have all these big companies, like of course they pay on right. time, but they're worse than our smallest. I know. It's the biggest so companies. It's the biggest mm-hmm. companies that are the most on. Oh, anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> No, let's talk about the marketing piece, because you mentioned with more money, you'll be able to do more marketing. What have you done so far on like a scrappy budget, just hustling? So we do a lot of in-store demos. We found that, um, you know, a lot of times people hear gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free and think taste-free. And so, but once they're willing to try our product and have a chance to try our product, we find that we're able to easily convert people. Um, So we do a lot of in-store demos. We do a lot of targeted social media. We do um, local events like vegan festivals and gluten-free festivals. And one interesting thing I wasn't necessarily expecting when we launched, considering I thought our consumer was going to be food allergy moms, we Mm -hmm. found that our highest repeat customer rate is with multicultural females. And so we're going to engage more in events like um, Blavity Summit 21 conference this year. And we're looking at Essence. And so going where... The people who have been showing interest in our product and who have been buying our products, whether that's vegans or gluten-free by choice or African-American women, that, that's where we're going this year. All right. And yeah, I think that is so smart and so on the money. You definitely, you're speaking to your customer right here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so interesting because for a long time, um, you know, I would say, oh, I, this gluten, this gluten. And my husband would be like, do you even know what gluten is? What What is gluten? <laughs> you know? <laughs> No, our house has gone gluten-free since our daughter is diagnosed with the allergies. And none of us are like have an anaphylactic response, but Mm -hmm. like there's a definite, definite like marked difference Mm -hmm. between when we eat gluten and when we don't. So I totally understand your gluten conference. Yes. Now let's talk about the mental and physical roadblocks as, yeah, as someone who has really invested her all into this. And I can tell that you are just all in. What have been some of the mental or physical roadblocks that this business has led to you having? I think it's the the lack of self-care. And I know self-care, the, the whole phrase just seems so like cliche and it's everywhere, but it's so, so critically important. Like, I, I mean, in full disclosure, like I never had any issues with anxiety or anything before starting this company, but I think the constant like 18, 20 hour work days, working seven days a week, like it can just really like screw you up. Yeah. And so if you don't take the time to, to work out or to meditate or to do whatever it is that brings you a little bit of peace, like it's just not sustainable. So I think for me, it's just really trying to make time for self-care and prioritize like taking care of me it's like, you know, if I'm not working, I'm trying to make sure that everything is good for my daughter and for my husband and checking out on friends and family. And, and sometimes you forget to check in on yourself. And so right. just like really making that a priority and, and not just saying it, but actually like carving out the time to do it. I think it is definitely something that I'm working on. Good. And, you know, I think it's also stressful and I can imagine there being anxiety because you had a two income household and, and you told us you don't take a salary. So... As much as you have your husband, I think people always assume that, oh, if you're an entrepreneur who's married, it's okay because your husband is taking care of everything. But I can imagine that that caused shifts in how you guys lived your life going from two incomes to one. Definitely so. And I think, you know, I I underestimated how different it would be, but 
you know, like when we raise this money, I could choose to take a more significant salary, but I'm so all in on this business and wanting to pour like as much as we can back into the business that we're, we're just not going to do that. And, and have you had to shift, um, for example, family vacations or even the care for your daughter just to scale back a bit? You know, I think it's me that suffered. <laughs> a lot of the oh, no. stuff I used to do, like the self-care stuff, like the manicures and the pedicures and the massages and the hair appointments. Like if you stopped right now, you'd be like, where trained it ran you over. Um, and so I think it's a lot of that. Yeah. It's definitely the travel. It's the the little stuff that we never thought about before. Like I used to go to the grocery store and not like look at anything. And now I'm like, that organic grass-fed meat I bought cost that much? And like, just like things like that, that I didn't realize how much they were adding up in Mm -hmm. in our life. And I mean, I will say we're still like super, super blessed that I'm even able to do this, but it definitely has a cost of shifts. Of course. And, uh, you know, a lot of people lose money in their first few years of their business. What has been your experience as far as is Partake Foods profitable? If not, you know, where are you guys? And if you are profitable, what are some things that you've been investing back into the business? So we're not profitable yet, but I think that if we can get to about 850 stores, which we should hit in Q3 of this year, we will be profitable. Um, if we're able to, I, and I think that's a function of us keeping things so lean. That's like me and one employee. That's us not having an office space. That's like none of the fancy stuff that people like associate with a lot of startups. So it's like just bare bones, but we could invest in marketing. We can invest in the business. We can continue to grow the velocity and grow the revenue and be profitable, which is much more what I'm concerned about than like getting an office space. Um, So hopefully by the end of this year, we will be in in a space where we are profitable. All right. And does it matter what where you're living? Like, do you want to be closer to your packer or does any of that affect how you're able to operate the business? You know, it's interesting that you asked this question because we've been talking about this at home this week because we live right outside of New York, which is such an expensive area. And I've been trying to where we're talking about maybe we should just move somewhere else because I could really live anywhere. Um, Because, you know, it's nice to be able to go into the stores that we're in, but for the most part, honestly, my days are spent on the phone and on conference calls and in meetings and not necessarily in the stores. And knock on wood, our co-packer has been a dream thus far and really has things under control. So we're typically only seeing them when we're introducing a new flavor or if we're doing some sort of change to our existing recipes. So you know, I don't, I don't think it matters where you live. And so I've seen a lot of food entrepreneurs move to less expensive places with less expensive costs of living to be able to invest more into their business. So, you know, it's something that we're actually considering as well. Okay. Up in the air. And as far as what's next, do you see yourself expanding into other areas of food? Definitely so. So my, my vision for Partake is that we will make meal and snack options that are delicious, nutritious and allergy friendly so that everybody can enjoy. Um, And so I think that our next couple of products will be in the snack category, but longer term, I think of like Annie's Organic and think they did a fantastic job cleaning up kids' products and think about doing something similar with Partake, but for products and making them allergy friendly. Got it. And you've started really attracting and generating buzz. Was this anything that you took specific steps to get into places to get coverage from people from our brands like People and Babbel or did that happen organically? 
People, we were lucky because one of our best friends is an editor at People. (laughs) Like literally, it was almost like, how did the editor find our cookies? We were on vacation um, last year in the middle of the year and I was reading a magazine at the pool and I saw our cookies in Real Simple. And I was like, how did they find them? (laughs) Oh, it's literally, it's been uh, just like people finding our product and sharing via word of mouth. And our friends and family just being generous with sharing our story and trying to get other people on board with our mission. And so, no, no budget for PR yet. Okay. (laughs) And long-term, would you consider acquisition? Is is that something on your radar? It's definitely something we're not opposed to if it's right for the company and the right partner comes along. Because I spent so much time in big food, I think sometimes big food gets a bad reputation that's not necessarily deserved. And I think that if we've built the right plan brand platform and we find a partner that's on board with that and going to continue to make products that meet our mission, that there's a lot of synergies that we could probably see from partnering with a larger food company. Ah, I can see that as well. And so, and what would be some of the drawbacks? So something that I think about is preserving your brand, really making sure with something that is so important, like the allergen and gluten and gluten allergy that it really stays intact. I think there's that fear. Um, you know, what I have seen firsthand is a lot of times as the company gets bigger, like say you get acquired and then your company gets swallowed up by a large CPG. Initially, they keep the original team on board. But as the company gets big enough to stand along with the other brands in that company's portfolio, sometimes those original team members get lost in the shuffle. And, and I think that part is something that scares me because you have these like wonderful, smart people who help build the company to where it is. And then for them to kind of get pushed to the wayside. It is really frustrating and disappointing. So I think that, um, you know, from a product standpoint, you look at companies that have been acquired and you look at their ingredient decks now versus what they were making whenever, like prior to acquisition. And you can see that sometimes big food is like cutting costs and changing ingredients. But I've also seen cases where that's not true. So, you know, I I think it's it's a really a matter of how involved you're going to be, how you craft the deal and, you know, how far along, you know, I, I... I I don't know. I think it can work well in some ways, but I've also seen it go really bad in other cases. Right. And I don't think any of us has, you know, there's no right answer to this. So it's it's really me more just having the conversation with you because it's something that I think um, anyone who's building a big business has to consider at some point. What does it mean? What does it look like? to continue to be the owner here? What does it look to sell? And how do you preserve that original product? I'm interested to see what happens in the food space and if companies start to IPO, because there's some companies like Chobani and Siete Foods is an up and coming um, company that makes better for you Mexican food. And they just raised like $90 million to create a billion dollar brand. And so I think there may be an opportunity if food and beverage companies are willing to hold out longer that maybe we'll start to see exits in a different form, not necessarily through acquisition or the founder having to stay on forever. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. We don't know. All right. So with that, why don't we transition into the lightning round? You just answer the very first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? I think so. <laughs> okay. Number one, what is a resource that has helped you in your business that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? 
LinkedIn. I think I took LinkedIn for granted before, but it's been so refreshing to me to see how many people are, are receptive to like crazy people cold emailing them on LinkedIn. So <laughs> I would say LinkedIn. Okay. Number two, what's been the best business book or podcast episode or industry event that you've consumed in the past year? Um, this is really food and beverage specific, but there is a podcast called Unfinished Biz. It's run by VMG, which is a, a large uh uh, private equity company or private equity fund, but they do a really good job interviewing uh, different founders and, and telling their stories and all the pitfalls and what to do's and what not to do's that come in this world. Yay, I love that. I love learning something new. Okay. Number three, what is a first step that someone who wants to get into the food industry, entrepreneurship space, what is a first step that they can take today? They can get in the kitchen and, and work on getting the product right. Because I think no matter how strong the brand is, no matter how great the nutritionals is, no matter how strong your relationships are with retailers, the product doesn't taste good. You probably not, you don't have a success on your hands. Okay. <laughs> All right. Number four, what is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your business? I make a point twice a month to talk to an entrepreneur whose company has failed. I think a lot of times we talk to everyone who's like on fire and they're killing it and like, I want to know about the companies that died, especially the companies that I thought had a ton of potential and died. And like, what should I avoid doing to end up in that situation, to not end up, to not end up in that situation? I love that. Okay. And last question, number five, what is your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss, but are worried about losing a steady paycheck? You know, I think you can you can start small. I, I know that my story necessarily didn't convey that completely, but like with our co-packer, we were willing to negotiate where they were able to negotiate like a teeny tiny run for them. And so I would say start really small to keep the cost as minimal as possible. There's a ton you can do as a solopreneur. We're, I'm still a solopreneur and, and, and we're pretty far along. So I would say start small, like something small can turn into something huge at the drop of a dime. So you don't have to like go big or go home from day one. All right. And what is the best way for people to connect with you and Partake Foods after this episode? So our website's www.partakefoods.com. Please follow us on Instagram. Our handle's Partake Foods. And just like every other startup founder, my email is my first name at partakefoods.com. So feel free to reach out to me. I'm Denise at partakefoods.com. Oh, thank you. That was very generous of you. All right, guys. So there you have it. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you want to hear more from me, head on over to sidehustlepro.co forward slash side hustle corner to get my weekly side hustle diaries chronicles about my own journey from passion project to profitable business. And if you want to find me online, I'm at Side Hustle Pro on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Don't forget to join the Side Hustle Pro Facebook community. Go to sidehustlepro.co forward slash mastermind. And as always, if you love the show, do me a favor and subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Thank you.